Welcome to The Catalyst, where we explore creative ideas to spark innovation in an unhealthy healthcare system. I'm your host, Dr. Lara Salyer, a physician and mom of three who is reimagining the way I practice medicine after suffering and overcoming burnout. Join me as I teach you how to optimize flow and catalyze your own revolution in healing. Tune in for candid conversations with leading experts in conventional and holistic healthcare who dare to believe a better future is possible for all of us. Life is made of teeny catalytic moments of immense impact. When strung together, the transformation is magical. Join us and let's color outside the lines. Welcome to the Catalyst Podcast. Today, you're going to meet Dr. Aruna Tamala, MD. She is a board-certified adult and geriatric psychiatrist and founder of Psychiatry 2.0 and Trinergy Health. Conventional psychiatry has become a linear, medication-dependent, symptoms-based model with little to offer the millions of people struggling with mental illness. In response, Aruna, MD, turned to integrative psychiatry fully embracing a patient-centered collaborative care approach, which attempts to find the root cause of a person's problems and work towards achieving overall mental health and balance. Aruna MD has pioneered a new path for mental wellness. Rather than just addressing the symptoms, Aruna MD uses a broad scope of intervention, including diet, exercise, natural personal care products, meditation, yoga, and nutritional supplements, as well as Ayurvedic herbs and psychotherapy. She strives for health, harmony, and vitality in all her patients. She's authored and presented on topics of mental illness, Ayurveda, and integrative approaches to mental illness to academic audiences, both in the United States and abroad. This is a great interview. Inside, you're going to hear us talk about evidence-based methodology and why our healthcare has this infatuation with metrics and measuring and how that has gotten in our way and sabotaged true mental and physical wellness. We'll talk about the three criteria of evidence-based methodology and why they don't necessarily have to be present in order to achieve wellness and balance. You'll hear about what we both envision an optimized mental health space should be in five to 10 years and ideas that you can start checking and maybe uncovering a root cause of your label that is depression or anxiety etc. And how you don't have to be perfect to do it all and achieve better optimized health. So listen to this wonderful interview with Aruna MD. I'm so excited. It's not often that I get to talk to a neighbor and Aruna MD is here on the Catalyst podcast today. She lives in Wisconsin. She's a fellow cheesehead, but really she's way more than that. We're going to peel back the layers of her journey and learn all about how we can revitalize current modern psychiatric treatment using holistic and integrative methods. Thank you again, Aruna, Aruna MD, for coming today. Welcome. Thank you, Laura. It is my absolute pleasure to be here, Laura. Absolutely. I'm so excited to talk. You know, you are a catalyst. And before we went on air, you shared how you also decided to shift and resign in 2016. It was a very serendipitous year for both of us as we both, both of us, yes. yes, for both of us as we left our current our job and decided to color outside the lines and do something different. So can you walk us through what were your tiny catalytic moments that made you realize you needed to do something on your own? I think the the seeds for this were probably sown very early in my career. You know, I originally I'm from India. I grew I was born and raised in India. I went to med school in India. 
And I also completed my psychiatric residency in uh, Bangalore in uh, at the National Institute for Mental Health and Neurosciences. The acronym is NIMHANS. And it's, it's a very, uh, it's a state-of-the-art psychiatric and neurological hospital um, and very well known all over South Asia. So we would get patients from Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Pakistan, you know, all the neighboring countries. So we really had a reputation. And the big thing there was that there, there was a more holistic approach. And we, what I was taught, and I was studying the same textbooks, Kaplan and Sadok's textbook of psychiatry that everyone studies here in the US. It's the same textbook. But we were more heavily influenced by World Health Organization and the ICD-10. And what was impressed upon me is that we really don't know what causes mental illness. We think it is chemical imbalance. So the very least that we can do is look for medical neurological causes. So I cannot tell you how many times I've diagnosed, you know, neurosyphilis, hypothyroidism, parathyroid issues, uh, just to name a few. Right. Granted, it wasn't as holistic as you and I learn in functional medicine, but it was definitely much more. Like, for instance, if somebody came in with the first episode psychosis, I would get a complete blood panel. I would get a chest X-ray and a CT scan. Because not only to rule out tumors, but also to rule out infections. With living in a tropical country, we have yes. to look at different of, you know, tapeworm infestation or tuberculosis. And syphilis was also kind of there in, in India. So come with that background. And, and I will share this story. On my very first day, I had moved from my hometown to this big city, Bangalore. And on my very first day, I had forgotten to take the tools of the trade, which is my uh, knee hammer and other tools that we use for a neuro exam. And I was reprimanded. I was by my attendings there. Like, what do you think? You have to do a complete neuro exam. Otherwise, your psychiatric exam is incomplete. So then I moved a few years later to the United States. And I got into a residency program here at the Medical College of Wisconsin. <clears throat> and this time, I was not going to repeat the same mistake. So I spent considerable amount of money to get a new stethoscope, a new litmus, a new fundoscope, a new knee hammer. And I went fully on. I love that. <laughs> and everybody knew that I was a practicing psychiatrist from India. So the attending here um, says, hey, why don't you demonstrate a psych exam for the first year resident and the medical student? So, you know, I proceeded to examine the patient. And, and after the exam, the interview portion was over, I got up to do what I thought was I should be doing. I took my stethoscope and my fundoscope and I approached the patient. The patient was taken aback, but more than him, the attending was flabbergasted. He was like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm doing a neuro exam. And it's like, oh, no, no, you don't touch the patient. I'm like, why? Oh, that we have an internist. We have a medical doctor, but we are physicians. Oh, my goodness. No, no, that's medical legal liability. And so how are you going to rule out medical causes? That's what the internist is for. And I'm like, I, right, it's so fragmented. Wow. It is so fragmented. The divorce between mind and body was complete. Now, as a resident, you don't want to rock too many boats. So, you know, you just go in, you know, I did that. But I was so pulled in with, oh, you know, the, the neurology and the interface between the brain and the mind. I went and I completed my fellowship in geriatric psychiatry. But I, I will tell you that there were like some, and then, you know, I began to read, uh, what was it? There was an article that was published in National Geography magazine about the levels of different environmental toxins in the blood of American adult male, female, and a child, and compared that with the same toxin levels in European counterparts. And they found that the toxin levels, even in newborn cord blood, was way higher than it was in Europeans. 
And they talked about the health effects of all of this. So at that point in time, I was, my husband and I, we were ready to start a family. And what I did, I cleaned up my house to the extent that I knew it, you know, not so much, but definitely cleaned up, switched to organic milk and eggs and meats. And, you know, we started to do that. I was being careful about what I was feeding myself. Pregnancy happened, lactation even more, like, you know, uh, and then my parents and my in-laws, they came in with uh, tons of herbs, which is part of our Ayurvedic culture. Yes. In India. Thankfully, I did not question any of that with my Western uh, trained <laughs> brain. I was like, okay, oh, you want me to eat ghee? Yes, I don't love ghee. So I mean, tons of ghee. And I had, you know, I went for my annual checkup and my primary care physician was, oh, your cholesterol is up. You need to stop eating ghee. I'm like, I am nursing my baby. She needs it. I'm in my early 30s. It's not going to affect me. You know, that's okay. If I, once I stop that, it's going to come down. But if I, I mean, I could see in my breast milk how fatty it was or not, you know, depending on what I ate. So I was really so focused on this second pregnancy. By then I had, you know, started working for the hospital and I would not eat in the cafeterias because I was so careful about what I was feeding myself. And naturally I thought, okay, what about patients are eating the same thing that I'm refusing to eat here. And around that time, between my two pregnancies with all the, you know, excess work and, you know, responsibilities, I thought I was having ADD. So I went and I consulted with a psychiatrist. He diagnosed me with ADD, put me on Adderall, which I took for one week. I could not sleep a wink. And I remember feeling so hopeless and I would like tell my husband, look, if I'm distracted and if, if the house is a mess, guide me. I need you to be my external locus of control and external motivator. This is how I felt. But my questioning about this diet and medicine, Google can be great sometimes. So I began to like, you know, just diet and mental health. I started Googling it. And this was 2011, 2012, especially, you know, my second child was born and I wanted to lose some extra weight. And I went on this amazing smoothie kick. You know, I started doing smoothies and really focused on, you know, only eating organic, still didn't clean up the house, you know, in terms of our, you know, the cosmetics and the lotions and detergents and all that. But just with the smoothies, I began to see that I had amazing energy all the way till three o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon. I was like an energizer bunny. My ADD was gone. So I was, I I was like, oh my gosh, I mean, this is what we need to do. And around that time, I actually, um, I went to an APA conference in uh, 2013 May, the last one that I attended. And when I went there, I came across a group of uh, physicians who were calling themselves integrative psychiatrists. So I thought, oh, they're, they're integrating psychotherapy with psychopharmacology. No. Then Daniel Lessimus is a physician who was, uh, he was, uh, at that point in time, he was on the board of ABIHM, American Board of Integrative and Holistic Medicine. And I was blown away with what they were talking. So October 2013, I went for my first conference and I was like, and um, functional medicine, uh, Dr. Patrick Hannaway, he presented a patient case, a 40, some early 40s young woman with like 20 diagnoses and 40 medications, including depression, anxiety, chronic fatigue syndrome, and all of that. And he showed how in three months time, he was able to help her recover from all of that and come off of many of her medications. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I want to do that. So at that point in time, I would have migraines. I was diagnosed with PCOS. I was slightly overweight and I had Hashimoto's. So, I mean, all these accumulating diagnoses myself. And, um, and so that was, so when I saw that 
we can heal ourselves through these, you know, really just getting the body back into balance. I was blown away by Patrick Hanaway's lecture. And also I was introduced to Ayurvedic medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, and Ayurveda simply spoke to me. So between 2013 and 2015, I dove right into Ayurveda. I did my course with Maharishi Ayurveda and uh, then also started uh, going down the path of functional medicine. And I remember every time I would go to these conferences, I would, Patrick Hanavi, if I see him, I would go up to him, hey, don't tell me how to fix diabetes or uh, high blood pressure or heart diseases. Tell me what I need to do for psychiatry. And very Zen, like Yoda-like, he would tell me, oh, no, no, it's okay. Come back for the next conference. (laughs) Until it dawned on me that I needed to step out of my lane. Like I needed to really look at the whole body. So what if I'm a psychiatrist? I needed to learn how to fix thyroid. I needed to learn how to fix the gut. Um, I needed to learn how to balance hormones. And it it really, um, that when it dawned on me, that's when I was like, this is what I need to do. So I would come back from these conferences with so much of this enthusiasm. And at the hospital, it was like, nope, you can't do that. You're causing us to lose money. Insurance doesn't want to cover your patients because you're not starting them on an antidepressant. But hey, they've had 10 antidepressant failures and they actually have methylation gene polymorphisms. We need to address that. They have leaky gut, they have thyroid. And the worst thing, I mean, I was actually reprimanded for this patient by the team at this hospital. He was somebody who was diagnosed with depression with seasonal exacerbations. He was already on Effexor, 225 milligrams. This was in December. He came in. And he said, oh, every year I come in for my seasonal depression and the doctor puts me on Wellbutrin for a few months, put me on Wellbutrin and then I'll be good to go. He was obese. He was irritable, depressed, you know, all of the classic signs. I said, okay, let's take a look at your vitamin D. His vitamin D was six. Like I've six. never seen six. Oh my goodness. I've never seen such a low thing. And I was like, hey, buddy, we need to treat your vitamin D. This could be what's causing it. And I refused to put him on Valbutrin. I said, no, we need to address this first. So yes, I get pulled into the proverbial principal's office. And I was like, oh, you're insensitive to people's pain. I would also not prescribe opiates when people would come in for detoxification from alcohol or cocaine. But no, I'm not giving you an opiate. And I I refused to give Suboxone because I saw that it was down the same path. And um, uh, yeah, but I would help them detox with naltrexone. Why are we not pushing naltrexone? Why are yes. we only giving methadone and suboxone? Yes. And um, and uh, I was so, yeah, I mean, my medical director, I mean, I had some amazing conversations with this dude. One day he pulled me into his office and he's like, you know, yeah, I think you're from India. You guys are used to pain. You, I think you're insensitive to pain because you've grown around poverty and a lot of pain. I'm like, wow, that's a lot <laughs> to unpack there. Wow. Yeah, I was like, uh, no, I'm not prescribing opiates just because my ratings are going down. Not doing that. And um, and but I must say that, you know, my other colleagues on the unit stopped prescribing Suboxone because I held on to it. And they were and everybody also saw that people who were prescribed Suboxone, they were a revolving door. And granted, the ones that I gave naltrexone to, they didn't like me so much that they didn't come back. But at least I feel good that I gave them different options. And I was, you know, when Suboxone came on board, there was this huge push. I got licensed in Suboxone, but within a few months, I began to see that it was not really helping people 
to come out of that addiction. And, right, and, right. and the more I've done this holistic work, I see like trauma as the great gateway drug. And so you have to have that psychotherapeutic approach. It's not just about getting people to stop using. That's just the tip of the iceberg. There's, there's so much more that needs to be done for these people and um yeah so i mean yeah i've been um i've been known to be stubborn so so this is uh yeah so by 2016 you know uh enough of butting heads with them and you know i wanted to do something much more rewarding and the the thing is pa- patients were ready for that they were they were really wanting to know more about how they could fix themselves through diet and lifestyle changes but the administration was not um, I also got tired of fighting with insurance companies because they were not covering my patient's stay. So that's when, you know, in 2016, I gave in my resignation and um, started my practice and I tried to kind of envision having a practice where we I did things against the norm. So didn't take insurance. That was the first thing and spent a lot of time. I mean, my uh, initial consultation is uh, I reserved 90 minutes typically about an hour, but if patients need more time or if I have more questions, you know, we go over that point in time and really dig deep. And a lot of it is about, you know, figuring out who they are and why they're having this particular experience in their life. And um, it's it's been a very, very rewarding work. Uh, I sleep like a baby. (laughs) That's excellent. And what I love most about your story, which thank you for sharing, this is so important that I think Americans, and maybe it's global healthcare worldwide, we have this infatuation with evidence-based metrics. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't measure success, but we're too involved with this ability to say it has to be a linear path. We have to show these metrics, and we're, we're we have this love affair with quick and efficient pill for an ill. You know, oh, you're depressed. Here you go because you only have 15 minutes with me, and I got to get you out the door, right? And, and that's when I I think, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I was gonna say, that's when I think healthcare took a nosedive is 20 years ago when we started measuring pain, we started saying the doctor needs to address the pain. We need to fix the pain. And you mentioned external locus of control. That has been that, that separation of health has been this external locus of the physician to get you healthy. And that is the furthest thing away. All of us that have signed up to be in medical school and a doctor, we all want to help our patients heal. And many of us did not envision this kind of landscape where we're just throwing pills at people. We really want to walk with them on that journey. And I love that you went outside the box and said, you know, healing can come in many forms. It isn't just a pill. It can be looking at your vitamins. It can be talking about trauma. It can be using ancient indigenous practices that get you to a healing space. It can come in many flavors. And that's what I love about how you're uniquely pulling together your expertise to give each person a different path towards wellness. Yes. And then again, it wasn't like I planned, but the more, you know, if, you know, to lot to respond to the comment that you just made. So, you know, the, the this is all, I mean, honestly, it's all propaganda and, and the, the, you see it the most in the field of psychiatry. So you talked about, you know, you know, the evidence-based medicine, the father of evidence-based medicine, David Sackett, actually has three criteria for evidence-based medicine, and only one of them is randomized controlled trials or the studies that we do. The second one 
is actually patient preferences, values, and morals. Yes. The third one is physician personal subjective experience, expertise, and their intuition. So now what's happened, evidence-based medicine is all being reduced to randomized control trials. Correct. And I was thinking along these lines too. Let's look at randomized, the, the gold standard, right? Double blind placebo control, right. randomized control trials. So you're taking a group of people, dividing them into two, I mean, two homogenous groups, and you're giving one of them the active drug, the other one, the placebo. And it's, let's take, you know, the STAR-D trial, which was the antidepressant trial, where they did this and they found that placebo response was 30%, 30 to 35%. And with citalopram, which was the first level intervention, it was not even as much as the placebo. And that placebo, that a drug response really at the end of six months, when, you know, when it is remission, you know, six months, no symptoms is used to be considered remission. This is something that I saw recently. So um, at the end of six months, only 18% of patients on citalopram were still not depressed, whereas the placebo response held itself at 35 to 38 or even 40%. So we were so, we, we were in medical school, we are so taught to focus on the drug, active drug, but not one of us was taught and the drug researchers were not asking, hey, if this person is responding on their own, what are the healing mechanisms that are operating in this person? And can we teach that to others? That should have been the important question arising out of RCTs. Yes, I, I agree. And I also think that <clears throat> it is impossible to look because think of how complicated we all are, right? How, how our yes. culture we grew up in, the family of origin, the different pre-verbal childhood trauma we may have had or intergenerational trauma that yes. causes epigenetic differences. All those things are so complex that I think our, our brain just cannot wrap around all the different modalities that could cause a label of depression or anxiety. And yet we kind of stumble over our own feet. I see this often in holistic or functional medicine. We want to do it all for the patient and show them all the different ways. And that's overwhelming for patients. And sometimes yes. when we anchor it down to simple steps and just say, listen, you don't have to be perfect in everything. You don't have to eat completely organic. Just do something towards yes. that way and look at some of these other bigger items that even just knocking 20% of them out can sometimes yield 80% of benefit and they feel better. And that's what I love that you're showing people different views of how you can attain health. Is there something that you feel is the most common thing that you see that you're thinking, wow, for me, it's sleep apnea undiagnosed. I see so much of that, that I always ask patients, have you had a sleep study? Because that can be the single most determining factor of fatigue and other things. What would be your experience? So for almost all my patients, the, the common themes that I began to see was standard American diet, trauma, and toxins. So the toxins can be endogenous, negative thoughts can create toxins, you know, the Correct. cortisol and the stress pathway. Um, and um, uh, it, toxins are definitely from the environmental toxins, you know, the uh, all the chemicals that we get exposed to day in, day out. And especially as women, you and I, you know, the makeup that we wear and, you know, so that's, but there's also toxins from, you know, uh, microbiome disturbance from dysbiosis. So then trauma is a biggie. And, you know, mm -hmm. I've come to realize that uh, nobody escapes childhood unscathed. That's, Correct. you know, I'm, I'm owning up to it. Correct. <laughs> so it is, but as adults, it then becomes our journey to find yeah. ourselves. That's our hero's journey. 
And um, so, uh, so this is, a, and, and yes, I mean, how the, the, these three root causes then take the pathway of chronic inflammation, which can manifest as immune system problems, hormonal imbalance, sleep apnea, or detoxification abnormalities, and, and the leaky gut. So I kind of see these three diatrauma toxins as then going down this pathway of leaky gut and you know inflammation and then affecting different organ systems and then manifesting problems in that. So Correct. with every so this is kind of my understanding pulling together functional medicine and Ayurvedic medicine. Yeah. But one of the things you mentioned earlier, which I didn't want to comment about, was the external locus of control, right? And again, you will not see it exemplified nowhere in medical field as much as it is in psychiatry. What do I mean by that? So when somebody is attempting suicide or God forbid, when they are you know, actually completing suicide, who is held to blame? It's the psychiatrist and the mental health professionals. And again, I'm not completely absolving myself or my, uh, you know, my profession of any responsibility. But the one-to-one, and somebody comes in with a suicidal ideation, they're immediately put on a one-to-one where the attendant is instructed not to interact with the patient, which is like, you know, that's, that's an extended timeout that you're giving to somebody. Right. When somebody's feeling hopeless, I mean, hopelessness is the number one you know, a feature that we see yes. across all patients that are suicidal. And then we are putting them in an emotional timeout. It's like isolation, how yes. devastating that is. And I will tell you the, the other big contrast between my experience in India and here is that in India, the hospital is built around a garden. There's a central courtyard with beautiful gardens. There's a fountain and almost all the units are open units. They're not locked. Wow. We do have locked units, but that's for the very severely mentally ill. We're talking about chronic epilepsy, severe mental right. retardation, severe psychosis who yes. are really unable to be responsible for themselves. Safe, right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, safety of others and themselves. Sure. But everybody else, whether you had bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, depression with psychosis, borderline personality with suicidal attempts. Everyone was housed in open units. There was no one-to-one attendant. We did also admit patients with family members because it's an overpopulated country. But yes, you know, every patient got admitted with the family member. So that family member became the default one-to-one attendant. What but a different, oh my goodness. I just have to say that's such an amazing paradigm shift because it is. we aren't isolated. We're in a family system so that you invite yes. those people in is so cha- life-changing. That's amazing. It, and then I come here and even when I was interviewing for the residency programs, I would go to these different programs. Every hospital that I went to, it was a locked unit. And I was like, why are you locking me in? I felt threatened for being locked in. Why would you lock somebody in? You, you can see how it perpetuates. You can see how that isolation and that shame, it just sort of wakes up that shame and that guilt. And that's big trauma right there, feeling it isolated. Is big trauma. Yes. Mm-hmm. And also disempowerment. Disempowerment. Yes. So I did look up this question. So how many suicides in a year in Nimhans where everything is open compared to how many suicides in a typical psychiatric facility in the US, Right. I didn't, I couldn't find the stats for psychiatric hospitals, but I found the stats for medical facilities in the US. So I did this study last year. Um, I just did my own review. Um, And I found that in the US, in a typical medical facility, 
the number of completed suicides are 166 per year. This is patients who are, I mean, this is in a medical facility, but many of them are identified as having psychiatric issues and on one-to-ones, blah, 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 all of that. In NIMHANS, it is three per year. Wow. So I I mean, locking people up, even if they're suicidal, putting them on a one-to-one. So we really need to look at what we are doing here. Right. And I think, unfortunately, and all of the things that, you know, the one-to-one, the, you know, the, the door handles, the shower heads, mm-hmm. everything is kind of, okay, minimized. But all of that is external locus of control. We are disempowering patients. Right. We're not showing them that they can trust their own body. We're telling them, nope, you can't trust. We have to watch everything you're doing and we know best. And so we're handicapping them from any future ability to have autonomy and understand how to get better. And I do believe, and I'm sure you probably share this view, there's got to be change. And I think it's coming because too many physicians are starting to wake up to this and going, this isn't working, you know, and that's the definition of insanity is trying to think that something else is going to change, but you're doing the same thing over and over and it's not working. We're all getting sicker. So what do you envision being your ideal view of how we do medicine 10 years from now? What would you love? Let's fantasize. What would be your ideal picture of of medical care? Oh, um, I would love to have nature brought in. You know, and and definitely not this disempowering, uh, and you know, with healing gardens where patients are. You know, we used to have this. Um, actually, there was a a, a physician, a psychiatrist by name Mosher, M O S H E R. He um, had he ran a group home sort of a thing or you know, a therapeutic community back in the seventies, where he housed patients with schizophrenia, gave them. Very, you know, a lot of support, psychotherapy, family therapy, did not put them on medications. And after two to three years, they became well enough to go back into society as functioning individuals. We did have this concept of the therapeutic community. I think it's time to bring that back. Um, and yes. uh, and the over-reliance on, uh, uh, you know, according to Peter Gosher, who was the founder of um, Cochrane Foundation, Mm-hmm. He has, uh, I mean, he's a, he's a statistician physician and has done tons of research. He's highly critical of psychopharmacology. He's come out and said that less than 2% of psychiatric medications are actually helpful. And 98% are not only not helpful, but they're harmful. He right. has connected psychiatric medication use to both suicides and homicides based on the statistical analysis that he has done. And um, I am increasingly coming to believe that this is that there is uh, a pathway to that because these medications cause dysphoria. They actually make us feel more irritable. And I've seen enough patients with akathisia that was unrecognized by other psychiatrists. Right. It disconnects your your own interoception of your body. You know, you don't feel as whole. And for those that are listening, you know, psychiatric medication may be right for you. This is sort of like, I, I ascribe, ascribe to not a black and white rigid thinking model that healing can come in many paths. And there's also training wheels. You can have things that help you at some point, and then you can wean off of them safely with a provider. But what's what I'm seeing, and I think you're seeing 
is this shift that we're realizing maybe Western modern medicine doesn't have all the answers, but yet we haven't built the structure and the framework yet to incorporate group visits and community wellness and this, this aspect of togetherness. And it's getting there. I think a lot of people are seeing that, Hey, group visits are really powerful because you, you get to meet other people like you and learn. And it's a community driven emphasis on helping other people learn how to live in an optimized way without relying on so much of this pharmaceutical support. And and so tell me about your experience. What would you envision mental health to look like in five to 10 years? So, um, you know, I, um, I don't think of this idea that I have as, you know, black and white thinking. And I, you know, I am coming from my own experience as a psychiatrist, having transitioned into functional medicine and Ayurveda. And what I have seen is that psychiatric medic? I mean, again and again, every few years we see these articles coming out, you know, meta-analysis showing us that there is no chemical imbalance. It's high time that we accepted that reality and that truth. So then if there is no chemical imbalance, why are we giving these medications? And what is it? I mean, another statistic, in the last uh, 20 years, psychiatric prescription for U.S., citizens over the age of 12 has skyrocketed like over 400 percent that's the magnitude of increase in prescription of psychiatric medications yeah and and this is for citizens over the age of 12 so we're really including children and teenagers and the only thing that has skyrocketed alongside is rates of depression anxiety psychosis and completed suicides our youth the current suicide rates are you know 25 percent of our youth are committing suicide. This amount of increase, I mean, and this goes against what we were expecting with psychiatric treatment, right? I mean, and also, you know, again, studies like there's a there's a study that was published out of University of Ghana, where they compared psychiatric outcomes, including suicide, across different countries. And they looked at access to psychiatric care. And the indictment of our approach is in studies like this, where they found that the more access there is to mental health professionals, more per capita spending for mental health, we are actually seeing more psychiatric morbidity and mortality. Similar study published out in Australia. I mean, I have put all of these in my Instagram uh, account um, where they looked at rates of prescription of antidepressants in teenagers and rates of suicide attempted and completed. Again, it both are going up. So I think it's, I mean, I, as a psychiatrist, I really think it has become imperative that I call out my profession from within and say, hey, again, like you said, it's insanity to continue doing the same thing and expecting a different result. So it's mm-hmm. high time we said, okay, there is no chemical imbalance and the medications that we are giving are causing more problems, not reducing the problems. Plus, they're causing metabolic syndrome. Within 10 years of being on an antipsychotic medication, which a lot of children on the autism neurodevelopmental spectrum are put on, we also use antidepressants for treatment-resistant depression. So antipsychotics too are heavily prescribed. Within 10 years of being on this medication, these children are becoming diabetic, obese, and developing metabolic syndrome. Right. And you see, you see that this is not 
a, a sustainable solution. And yet we have single parents that are trying to get their kids in school and teachers that have overstuffed classrooms. And you can see how that this is a societal problem. This is is a complete breakdown of the infrastructure. How can we help these kids and these adults? And I would like to see a future where our insurances cover, hey, this is what we need to do. Let's look for toxins. Let's look for gut microbiome first. Let's look for vitamin levels before we jump Yes. Lyme disease. Right. And especially in Wisconsin. I mean, let's do some of the bare minimum and also help our families with accountability because the hardest thing as a parent is having somebody tell you, oh, well, it might be these things, but you're going to have to completely eat differently. You're going to have to go and buy all new expensive products. This can be so overwhelming for our families that feel isolated. So this is where I think a good use of social media can come in handy. When you reach across the internet and you have support groups that say, I'm doing this too, we can help each other. And I love that that is what your vision is. So tell us a little bit about about your, your in closing, tell us where we can find out more about your, your vision of a better, more well mental health. So, um, I mean, true. I, my big mission is to transform how mental wellness is practiced, how psychiatry is offered. And, um, and I completely, I'm in sync with everything that you said, why can't insurance companies pay for organic food, right? Instead, they are willing to pay for Ozempic. I don't know. Yes. I saw an article like for children over the age of 12, they're talking about giving this expensive injection for lifetime without really looking at long-term data. Right. They're really, I mean, that's, I I don't know. It's despicable. It's despicable. It is. And we need to call it out. We as not only us, and it's not only your job or my job to call it out. Definitely it is ours, but I say pediatricians should be doing that. Parents should be doing that. Teachers should be doing that. And we really need to kind of, we really need to talk about all these things openly and without fear. And, um, but, you know, what I am doing, my part is definitely putting out this information on all my social media. It's Trinergy Health, but also, you know, Psychiatry 2.0, that's going to be the new program that I'm offering. Um, People can find me at trinergyhealth.com and psychiatry2.com. Um, and my phone number is 262-955-6600. My mission is to really saturate social media as much as possible. I'm on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, or rather I should say my social media team, make sure that I'm on all these platforms. I'm not taking it all. But my, I really want to saturate social media with this kind of information that health is possible We can heal from, and I have so many patient stories. It doesn't matter whether you have schizophrenia, bipolar, depression, anxiety, PTSD, everyone can heal and recover. And I will be showcasing more of these patient journeys. Uh, And the other thing I want to impress upon our listeners is that the turnaround time with diet change and or supplements is literally two to three weeks. And the first change that we always see is in the gut. Diarrhea goes away, constipation gets resolved, and people begin to feel better. They feel lighter. They feel more yes. energetic. And that's how my patients are able to buy in. Like I'm, I just started working with a woman who was diagnosed with celiac disease, and she's had trauma and depression and anxiety, two antidepressants, like one isn't enough. And literally two weeks, her celiac disease symptoms are getting better. It, it doesn't take long. And so for people out there thinking, oh, this is hard. Yes, yes, change is hard, 
but know that there is a lot of support. I mean, I, I think we should create a pandemic of health and a pandemic of love and support. I love this. That is beautiful. And that actually is so congruent with my mission to help people not become burned out, how to, how to understand and unlock their energy and live in a very creative and vibrant world, especially healthcare practitioners. And so yes. I have one more question in, in our, in my mission to help healthcare practitioners and patients live a life of joy and ease and anti-burnout. I have a three-step method I call the AHA method. It stands for anchor, highlight, and activate. But today I want to ask you on the activate, the last step of the AHA method, what do you do to activate your own somatic energy and prevent emotional exhaustion? What do you like to do? The number one thing is actually self-awareness and meditation. So I will share my own personal story. My mom passed away this last year. Oh, so that, thank you. And um, the only thing that, I mean, I was in a funk. I was, you know, all of, she passed away November 10th. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, my, you know, things that I needed to do, I didn't get to do. So there was guilt and regret and, sure. you know, all of the pain of complex. You know, yeah. It's, it's a very, it was a very complex thing. And I found my, I mean, I'm human, you know, we all are. Depression and anxiety happens to every one of us. We've, ex, I've experienced trauma and, you know, in many, many times. But what keeps me going is really finding my core, my, my real self through meditation. And that's what really, I mean, slowly but surely, but um, also, you know, family and friends and, um, you know, uh, reaching out, do not hesitate to reach out, you know, people, you know, if you think that people are avoiding you, it's because they want to give you space more often than, you know, than anything right. else, and, you know, reach out and, you know, uh, and ultimately, only we can save ourselves, right? Wise words, you're right, uh, we need to voice our needs and be comfortable saying I need a little support, here's what would feel good to me right now. And, and uh, if you're on the other side, and, and somebody is grieving, and you want to support them, ask, you know, I, yes. can I bring you food? Do you need somebody just to sit with you? It's okay if you don't talk. And I love that you're bringing language to this, and you're bringing a New refreshed psychiatry 2.0 is just amazing. So thank you so so much for joining us. Tell us where we can find find you, your website, Instagram handle, etc. So my website is trinergyhealth.com, uh, and I will send you all the spellings and everything, and also psychiatry2.com. Phone number is 262-955-6600. And Trinergy Health is my Instagram handle. Um, uh, Twitter is Trinergy underscore health. YouTube is also Trinergy health. Um, and beautiful, yeah. beautiful Aruna MD. It has been a pleasure. You are absolutely a catalyst that is creating a new healthcare and you are coloring outside the lines. It is an honor to be a fellow Wisconsinite with you. And I hope that we can meet in real life sometime soon. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Lara. It has been my pleasure. Thank you so much. One of the main problems in functional medicine is overwhelm, and the future is visual. If you're a holistic or integrative practitioner, you're looking to streamline those steps and build your own creative practice. Let me help you. Check out my premium subscription box delivery service. Subscribers get monthly deliveries of digital tools right to your inbox. The first welcome box includes immediate access to over 61 customizable 
functional medicine specific infographics. Yes, you get to put your own logo, you get to change text, you can even translate them to other languages. Let me help you make your delivery of medical care easy. You also get a complimentary mentoring session and a free copy of my book. Then each monthly box contains a new customizable infographic, vaulted masterclasses from deep inside my Catalyst Studio mentorship. You also get SOPs, templates, and other tools that you can apply to streamline your workflow. Let me help you uncomplicate your functional medicine practice. There's no contract, cancel any time. It's like a mini mentorship delivered conveniently right to your inbox. Just head to drlarasalier.com forward slash shop. Thank you for listening and subscribing to the Catalyst Podcast. If you're a functional medicine practitioner, download my free 10-page checklist to catalyze your next steps in your business. And if you're a medical student, resident, or a hospital system looking for a colorful, transformative experience backed by research, please contact me. Everything's available on drlarasalier.com. Keep coloring outside the lines.